Lolita Taub has made it her mission to create generational wealth in community. As the daughter of a Mexican immigrant family, providing underestimated founders and funders with resources is at the core of what Lolita has set out to do. With 15 years working in the Silicon Valley ecosystem, she's made over 80 investments as an angel and VC at Backstage Capital and the Community Fund. Lolita also co-founded the startup investor matching tool in 2020, which has since made over 2,000 intros and helped founders raise $6 million. Now working on building her own fund, Ganas Ventures, as a general partner, Lolita's leveraging her online presence and community building mentality to change the narrative about what being an investor means. Lolita had some insights to share about the principles of community-led growth, the future of investing relationships between LATAM and the U.S., and bringing diversity into the VC world. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos LATAM! What's funny is that you were just telling me that you're in, in Santiago, Chile, and last time we talked, you were in Mexico. So basically, you went from the northernmost part of Latin America um, to the to basically almost the southernmost part uh, of Latin America. So tell us a little bit more about this LATAM tour and give us a bit of highlight on, on what you're trying to accomplish there and what the motivations are for this trip. Yeah, so we were, Josh and I, my husband and I were in Mexico for about three months and I absolutely fell in love with La Ciudad de Mexico, what a special place, so much opportunity, so many great founders and funders. And one thing I'm super excited about is the emerging fund managers. So maybe we'll talk about it later. And we are actually one month in in Chile. And after that, it'll be Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, and then there's some tentative plans for, for Peru and Ecuador. But what we're doing here is doing a few things. One on the personal side together, we love traveling. On an individual perspective, I am exploring my indigenous roots. I am a first-generation Mexican-American, but 39.2% of my roots are indigenous. Uh, and on the business side, I mean, we are going to talk a lot about VCs and startups. It's so much about exploring this neighboring country and region, um, the Latin American region, Um in terms of the opportunity that lies in investing in the next wave of unicorns and decacorns, I am so excited for the growth of this market and to be part of it, really, and to join the community like you, members like you that are really making it an extra special place to come and collaborate and, and build up the ecosystem as well. Well, I'm sure we could have a whole episode on the food uh, exploring in the region, but we'll save that maybe for if I ever start a, uh, a food blog or uh, something of that nature, because I also love food. But um, talk a little bit more about how you see the future, your future of investing and the, you know, the relationship between LATAM and the U.S. You, you invest in Latinx founders, and then you're also now obviously diving deep into Latin America. How do you see kind of that coexisting and, and where do you see the opportunities? There's you know, different levels of opportunities. The first one that I would say is there's an underestimation of the market in Latin America. And it's obvious when you start looking at the numbers, right? So there's a huge market. LATAM represents over 600 million people at a $6 trillion in GDP. And that's basically, if you look at just the population itself, it's two times that of the U.S., um, when you consider also the internet penetration, which is, which is at 70%, consider, and this is relative numbers to China and India are at 59 and 50%, relatively speaking. 
The internet penetration is at 67%, again, higher than China and India, and expected to grow 15% by 2025. So there's an enga- there's a huge market. It's growing, right? And when you look at like the investment perspective, you look at last year, there was $20.5 billion deployed in venture capital dollars in Latin America. And that's great. But what's even greater and super awesome is the growth rate. So for example, in 2015, there were 259 investments made with a total value of about $1.8 billion. In 2020, that was 551 investments at a value of $5.4 billion. And last year, there were 952 investments with a total funding of $20.5 billion. So you're starting to see this growing deployment of capital, but not just investments, also the number of exits. In 2015, um, there were 52, and in 2020 alone, there were 105. So there's so much opportunity there. And then when you talk about U.S. and LADAM, um, there are so many opportunities. Um, you, you mentioned Corner Shop expanding, Notco also. You know, so, so there's so much opportunity to expand across borders. But also within LADAM, when you look at companies like Bitso in crypto or Rappi in logistics and distribution. These are great opportunities that are cross-border within Latin America itself. So, and, and the last thing I would say is that there's so many problems to be solved uh, and a huge market that's online. And so I think those things just make for an incredible uh, region to be investing in. It brings us to Ghana's Ventures. So what, what's your thesis? Yeah, thank you for asking. We're so excited. So today is our launch day, and Ghana's Ventures is a $10 million 506C fund that's investing in pre-seed and seed Web2 and Web3 community-driven companies in the U.S. and LATAM. And um, by the way, if you or any of the listeners today are interested in learning more, I'm happy to share more because we have opened up an LP application process. So if you want to become part of the Ghana's LP family, you can. That's awesome. And a National Women's Day today. And uh, so that's, you know, that's when this episode drops. That's going to be the day we're recording, it. obviously, a little bit before that. But that's right around the corner. And I want to highlight something about communities. You'd mentioned communities and, you know, building communities kind of reminds me that you can't force a flower to grow, but you've got to create the ideal environment for its growth. So what are some of the principles founders should pay attention to when creating the right context for a community to blossom? Sure. That's a great question. I think the first thing though, is to step back and ask yourself, what is a community-driven company and what is the power that you're seeking to leverage from creating a community-driven company? Um, First off, community-driven companies are those where companies, um, their customers, one, identify as community members, have these members create a space where they connect and create value for each other. And third, they kick off this marketing sales flywheel. So very much instead of a go-to-market, a go-to-community strategy. And so when I say, again, go back to my first tip, which is understand the power of community-driven startups and figure out how you want to leverage it to lower your CAC, uh, increase your LTV, so on and so forth. That's a really important step before jumping in because community-driven companies do take a lot of effort and they require a lot of authenticity and focus because when you're creating community, it could go so many different directions. So on that note, tip number two would be when you're building your communities, 
make sure you have a clear vision, mission, values. Who are the community members that you're creating this space for? And you're really not creating a community as much as you're creating space for an existing community to congregate and, and leverage it to create value for members one and one-to-one, one-to-many, as well within the, your, your company itself. The third tip would be think about how you're leveraging the community-driven moat because it is a moat. It's hard to replicate, and those that come in and are able to establish a community, um, there's loyalty there. There's so many different ways that you can uh, leverage community. So, for example, maybe you create a community that is primarily focused on product feedback. Maybe it's customer acquisition. Maybe it's talent recruitment or even customer success. So there's different ways of, of thinking about it. And so getting really clear on what does community-driven mean to you? Is it the right fit? If so, what are your, you know, who is your community? How are you serving serving them? Why would they come to you? And how are you going to leverage it? And finally, um, and something that I know Gina and you are really all about is metrics. How are you measuring uh, the progress and the added value of having this community-driven go-to-market for your company? Because ultimately the goal is, run and create and grow and scale a wonderful unicorn decacorn company, right? So those would be my tips. How did you discover that community is something that you really wanted to focus on? Like take us back to like the moment where you're like, oh, this is something that is really natural for me. Oh gosh, this is, I can go on for days on this conversation, but I'll try to keep it TLDR. It, you know, from a personal perspective, it comes from growing up in South Central, um, and not a business perspective at all. Community was what kept my family uh, physically secure. We grew up in basically the neighboring city of Compton. So if you watch straight out of Compton or listen to any rap, um, it probably came or was referencing where I grew up in South Center, the Bloods, the Crips, so on and so forth. So community for me from a young age meant physical safety and also food and shelter. There were times when we didn't have enough food um, or we had a need. And it was community that came in to support my family and myself. And so I always learned uh, that community was very important, especially being daughter of immigrants where my parents left their entire family behind. And, and our core family was just my mom, my dad, and my two younger siblings and me. And so our family really was the community. And so it was always really important on personal side. But the bridge from there to business has really been my background and experience in sales. So I've been in tech for 15, over 15 years now. And a lot of my, my experience um, in those 15 years was sales. And I'll, I'll tie it back to, to community in a second. Um, and then the last six have been in venture capital. So how does community tie to sales? Here's, here's what's happened. And I'll tell you more of an evolution. And I, for anybody out there who loves sales, you'll love this. But there's really been an evolution in the market where you see we started some time ago. This was kind of the traditional sales go-to-market model where we would go and target the C-suite to make sales happen. Then there's a next iteration. The next wave of sales was targeting department heads. Following that was let's sell to users, right? And we, this is within our lifetime where we're think, thinking and seeing AWS and Salesforce say, you know what, we're no longer going to sell to the companies. We're actually just going to go to the users and have the users help us adopt um, our product and then make them pay lots of money, right? So we have that. So what's the next iteration? 
it's community, right? It's users that are actually not just users, they're people. We're actually going back to the roots of being human-centric and bringing a community together, giving them value and allowing them to create value for each other and for the community itself. And that's how it all kind of ties back together. But the reason why it's so important to me and I get so excited about community-driven companies is because there's two things in the marketplace that have happened that are super, just have made community-driven companies so timely and effective. Um, one is with COVID happening, so many people feel so lonely. Not that we weren't feeling lonely. I mean, there's statistics that show that we've been feeling lonely for a while, but that COVID really highlighted um, the fact that so many of us feel alone and we want to be part of a community, part of something bigger than ourselves. So that's really driving a lot of this community-driven um, impact in the business world. And then on the business side, more directly, right? What company wants to give all of their money to Google for ads? What better way than to expand and grow um, an LTV and lower CAC than allowing your community to be your advocate, to tell you how how to create the product they really want and want to pay for to, you know, be the talent that you need to recruit. And, and, you know, I can go on forever, but I think I'll stop there. (laughs) That makes so much sense. And, you know, it sounds like it's been a really natural progression for you. Let's talk about some successful examples of companies in LATAM who's currently, you know, they identify as being part of a community and have community led growth. What can we learn from those examples? Yeah, this is also a really good question. So I have two examples um, in my current portfolio. So I, while I was in Mexico, I actually invested in two companies, Miss Fans and Glitzy. Uh, Miss Fans is a community-driven creator economy-focused startup, and you know this is a great market, a hundred billion plus and growing. And what they're doing is they're enabling a community of new independent workers. Again, with COVID, uh, people have really been questioning. In, in the U.S., it's the great resignation. But all around the world, it's, you know, you get in Ubers, you talk to Uber drivers or anybody else, and they're like, you know, it's hard, but I'm now my own independent boss. And so being able to create uh, a company that allows creators to monetize and to have a community that supports each other, that is a great, um, that's a great example of an uh, early stage um, company that's also in my portfolio company. Another one that I'll talk about is Glitzy, also a Mexico HQ um, startup. What Glitzy is doing is they're providing home and spa wellness experiences. And what makes them community driven is they're literally taking a community that is existing, those that do massages, hair, makeup, nails, etc. And they're actually allowing them to have a platform where they can get all the work that they need as well as certification. So Glitzy themselves are creating a standard for all of LATAM to be able to have certification as an independent health and wellness um, provider as well as creating a community so that these new independent workers um, can have the support that they need and continue to grow and succeed. Now, in terms of like, you know, what companies you can see that are more established, um, I would say Rappi is a really great example. They're establishing a logistics grocery community and empowering their members to make a living. Um, and then Bitso, right? 
uh, Web3, crypto, blockchain, it's all driven by community. If you don't have a community, it doesn't work. And so these are two. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Latitude. I mean, you guys are so community driven and I am so excited to be part of the journey and support as much as I can and however I can. Thank you. No, you've been a huge uh, supporter of, of, of us and you've been part of the Angel Fellowship, which we're you know happy to have you involved there. And I think that's something that we're all kind of learning from each other. And I think that we're, you know, we're taking notes about how you've been able to create community. Let's talk about creating community from, from day one. If you're, let's say you're an early stage company and you're looking to build value for your users, like what would be the early steps of how to create a community? If you were to outline, you'd mentioned a few things already, but like if I'm starting from day one and I've got my initial, maybe a, a, a little bit of customer feedback, community start with just like uh, an in-person gathering? Is it, I oftentimes see people like create WhatsApp groups and think that's community, but tell me how you would start from day one if you want to build and become community focused as an entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, I'm going to go back to being human first because ultimately community work is heart work. Hard as well. It's hard, but also from the heart. And it's not everyone who is meant or wants to create a community-driven company. So I'll go back to saying, ask yourself, do you want to serve your community? Because there will be some days that are more sluggish than others, right? And, And it's not easy. And you don't turn it off because it's something that it has to be authentic. If it's not authentic, just don't do it. If it's if you rather work by yourself and not build a community, just don't do it. Um, and and so I know you're asking what are your tips, but I want to say the do not do's because those are just as important. And I've seen companies who will say, "I want to do community driven companies, a community driven company because of all these benefits. It's so great. Where do I start? What do I do?" Uh, but they don't work that way. They want to, for example, I've seen companies that will just say, we're just starting off super early and let me hire someone in marketing to manage the community. Community is its own entity and it crosses over different departments within a company. And I personally believe, and this is very subjective, there's other community-driven investors that think differently. But for me, the founder, or at least one of the co-founders, needs to be community-driven. So Brian, you are all about community. Gina is all about community. So having first that real talk with yourself and asking yourself, is this for you, is number one. Number two, again, what are you trying to do, right, for your community? You identify your community and you and you figure out what and how you want to leverage it. And then you go back to your community and you have, at the very beginning, it's individual conversations. If you're so small that you can still have conversations with all your prospects and your customers, that is a great way to start because there isn't a checklist of things that fits every community. Some communities will prefer one medium of communication over another. Some will prefer other platforms over another. Cultural context and values will have a lot of influence. So for example, there are people that are in in Web3 or crypto, they tend to use something like Discord. I use Luma a lot because I'm very event-centric. So I bring the community together at events. And so even asking yourself to that granularity and asking again, surveys, asking your people, what do you want? How do I best serve you? And ultimately, I think the ideal is that you want to be asking that about the product or service that you're building. No, it makes a lot of sense. It's funny because we built a community-driven company 
But we start out just by like exactly as you said, just having lots of conversations with our with people that we cared about, which were early stage entrepreneurs. It kind of evolved into a community mainly because we just decided we wanted to help people. And then we wanted to scale our help. So we're like, how can we help more people? Let's get more people that also mm-hmm. want to help other people. And so it's funny because it's kind of like if you ask me how to explain English grammar, like I, I can't explain it. I just grew up speaking English and you know, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. And so it's interesting because, you know, you're, you're, you're someone that has, has executed on building kind of community driven organizations, part of your sales process also. Um, but you care, you truly care about a community. You do it naturally, but you also have some thoughts around it. Because for me, I just, I wouldn't even know how to explain what we've been doing. I've just been, you know, well, organizing. Well, you just did. Brian, you just did though, right? But that's, but see, this is the thing. If you're already community driven, you're going to just do it naturally. And some of the things, and a lot of it is trial and error, right? Because say your, your community will also have conflicting thoughts about what you should do or what you should add. And then it's part of a curator's role to be able to create that focus and figure out what you test and, and try out. Because as humans, There are things that are going to be messy, but you just explained it beautifully. It's an organic process because it's all very human-centric. At the same time, it's created a a, a stickiness factor. I mean, I'd love to hear from you because as I'm coming into Latin America, the concept of the phrase community-driven isn't as popular. Community-led growth maybe is a little bit more tangible. But what have you seen, Brian? What what are your observations and maybe intentionally or non-intentionally building your community-driven company latitude? I mean, for me, it started just because I struggled a lot and I had a lot of like difficulties in my journey. And there was people that took their time and energy and expertise to teach me a lot of things and and share with me things that they'd learned the hard way. And so it, you know, it made it easier for me, but it was still super hard. And so there was just a, an intrinsic motivation for me to, I guess, pave the way or help others so that it was, you know, less painful because it's super painful to build a company in LATAM. So I guess that's like the root of it for me was wanting to kind of pay it forward. And it's funny because during the process, we realized that, oh, this is actually an incredible opportunity just to listen to people. Sahil mm-hmm. uh, Lavinia, who, who, who says, you know, first you build the community, then you listen to the community, you know, and then you build solutions to solve problems for the community, and then you end up having a business, right? So like that like really resonates with me, even though it was... I could say that it's like was super planned and, but that would be completely, <laughs> that would be retrospective rationalization if, if, if there's a way to describe it, you know, where it's, it's like, yeah, we did all this stuff and then we were really smart, but really we were just start off, but just trying to be helpful. And, and you know what, at the core of it, that's how I would describe sales and community driven go to markets. It's an exchange of value for value and caring being at the centerpiece of all of it. And you know what? I love what Sahil says. He's, he's a good friend too and, and someone that I've talked to through the journey and, and, and continue to work with. Um, it's true. And ideally, that is the way you do it, right? You build a community, then you listen, and then you build a product. But so often, we all start in different points because maybe we started a company and then we pivot and then we did this and then we did that. And there are times when people 
have built products and the community just came. Um, so there's different directional points, but ideally that would be the case, right? But not everyone has the luxury of starting a community point blank and and not trying to to work on their business at the same time. And that is actually another question that I get very often. Lolita, should I start a community first or a business first? And to me, it's, it's a very individual answer. It, the answer is it depends. And very much about, oh, what's your overall strategy? What are you trying to do? And coming back to what you're saying, again, you are 100% like what I said, right? You have your mission, you have your vision, and you have values, whether you have expressed them or not, right? Transparency, being collaborative, being just helpful, paying it forward, right? Those, those are some of the words that you use. And those are the, that's the foundation of a really strong um, community. They resonate with me, and that's why I want you to be my friend forever. <laughs> and I want to help <laughs> you and Gina forever. Because, you know, good Thank people you. stick with good people. Thank you. No, that's cool. I'm going to ask, it's not a controversial question, but like we just mentioned Sahil, who was yesterday, he was uh, someone that he was in the Angel Fellowship and he's, you know, you know, he led a session when you were there. And then he also led one yesterday. And the question mm-hmm. came up from him about how does he think about diversity in his investing? And his answer, <laughs> which, which to some disappointment of a few people on the, on the, on the Zoom call was, I don't care about it and I don't think about it. And how do you, given that that's like such a centerpiece of what your community is is focused on, how do you come to grips with like people that have like completely different perspectives on that? And how do you coexist in a in a kind of a in a way that doesn't kind of goes against what you think? So how do you absorb that? And what are your thoughts? I, you know, in a community, it's so good to have people with different opinions because it only makes our opinions stronger or changes them for the better, right? If we're willing to listen. And I would have to challenge Sahil on whether he cares or doesn't because in between the lines, if you see a lot of the work that he does, he is all about decentralizing the ability for, um, to, to, for people to build a, money, right? To in an independent business, creator economy. And that's all about giving a hand to people who may not be able to make ends meet, right? And and there's so many other different nuances if you I believe read it between the lines of what Sahil says and does that would make me think otherwise that I don't know if I believe a hundred percent he doesn't care at all. Uh, but let's say he did, right? I actually have met investors who have said diversity, whatever, that's not a factor. And you'll, I'll, I'll tell you, my fund, there is no mandate investing in underestimated, underrepresented founders. And for those who are new to the word underestimated, underestimated means founder, underestimated founders in particular means un, those that can create unicorns, stack of corns, but don't fit the Silicon Valley uh, pattern matching status quo of cisgendered white socially economically advantaged, aka wealthy, who went to an Ivy League school. And to me, it's just so crazy that, uh, you know, when you think about who you invest in, that you would have a homogeneous portfolio of companies from a demographics perspective. And but at the same time, it makes sense, right? Because when you look at the the representation in the industry from an investor perspective, ninety plus percent is white cisgendered, well off men who went to Harvard or somewhere else, right? And when you start to actually look at the diversity in investors um, that also are are now entering the market, 
there's some similarities in terms of what school they went to and social economic class. So that's really interesting. But I also see that as an opportunity for not just within the U.S., but the LATAM uh, community to, to take the money that's being left on the table. You know, today, and, and there's been articles written about this, white cisgendered um, Latinos are the ones who are getting funded a lot of, more of the funding than anybody else. Well, there's this whole you know, other side of the population. And, and so I think there's so much opportunity to have, you know, emerging managers and just investors in general um, that don't look like the status quo, whether you just add the term Latino at the end or not, um, that can allow for the market to expand. I'm talking about you know, if the pie is big, we can enlarge a net if we actually look at market opportunities like LATAM, which I also believe is an underestimated market, and look at those that have been underestimated um, to lead in investments, to back founders that don't look like the status quo. Because look, if you invest where others are not looking, valuations are good and the business outputs are great and it allows you to build alpha, I don't think anyone's going to complain about alpha. So, you know, that's kind of my, my perspective there. But to each his own, I'm happy to also invest in a white cisgendered male, but I think there's so much opportunity and so much money I'd left on the table and I don't want to leave it there. I like your perception on Sahil and I think you're right about that because... I think that he likes also to be a little bit more kind of contrarian in how he communicates also because that's kind of part of his style. Um, But a lot of the stuff he's doing is like decentralizing capital. Mm -hmm. And so all those things are favorable for different, you know, different entrepreneurs and investors too and giving more access to to investors to put more capital to work. So I think you make a really good point. Um, I think he likes to be a little sensational too, uh, which is part of, you know, part of how he does things. He's just really raw in how he communicates and that's also part of his kind of personal brand. And so, um, I like how you challenge that a little bit. It makes sense. What about you, Brian? What do you think? (laughs) What do I think? Is this, is this turning into an interview of me? I usually don't get asked the questions. Uh, I'm usually the one asking the questions, but I'm happy to well, answer. I, I, you know, I, you did say we would have a conversation. So I, and okay. I'm also really curious about your perspective. I mean, Fair yeah. enough. One thing that I think is hard for people in general is that there's a feeling that when you're starting a company, no matter what, like it's hard, right? So, and, I, and, I, and I've, I've written about this a little bit, um, you know, on Twitter in the past or like everybody feels underestimated. I mean, if you look at kind of my situation, I, I definitely had certain uh, access to things probably easier than some other people. And even just being an American, uh, living in Latin America, sometimes people actually just gave me the benefit of the doubt and think that I like know more than I know or that I'm more trustworthy or things like that, which is kind of absurd, but it's just the reality. Um, and, you know, of course, when you're starting out, you want to figure out any way you can get ahead and make progress with what your ideas are. But I do think that there's like one of the, the consciousness of, of latitude is that like we look at diversity as an as an opportunity. We don't look at it as charity. It's not something that we mm-hmm. do because we know that it's the right thing to do. But at the same time, like it's a smart business decision. That's something we, we constantly, you know, kind of remind ourselves of when we, you know, we talk about that as a topic and something that is pretty kind of commonly discussed inside of our company. And we have a handful of initiatives where, you know, we have built into our OKRs, you know, 
particularly focused more on women. And of course, there's all different types of, of diversity. But we decided uh, in, in talking with Gina that like we would prioritize women um, because mm-hmm. and I remember having a conversation with Shu from SoftBank about this and kind of his advice was focus in on a, on a few different minority groups or areas of that you think are, you know, you should focus in and make waves there. And that's a, a good starting point. So that's kind of how we've adapted the thought process, I guess, at, at Latitude. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we always go back to one thing, which is it's an opportunity. And if there's people that are underestimated or underrepresented, you know, there's tons of talent and it's kind of like finding a diamond in the rough or, uncovering something that, you know, is maybe less seen to other people, which is actually what great investing is about, right? It's it's being able to identify opportunities that others don't see. Yeah. And so I think that it's built into the nature of what we're doing, not only from an investment standpoint, because we're not really a fund, that's not our core activity. However, we do do some investing, but it's really about bringing people to the community and pooling knowledge and sharing experiences that allow people to accelerate their opportunities. So that's kind of how we think about it. Um, but, you know, I'm constantly questioning myself on whether it makes sense. Well, you know, and, and I am, I've talked to Gina about the, the women initiatives too, and I'm so excited that you are making that a focus area. And it's true, right? Inclusion is different than just in general looking at market opportunities. And I think you can look at it with both angles and it's okay. In fact, ESG right? Environmental social governance is something that's trending. And a lot of LPs, actually, so institutional investors and funds are starting to ask fund managers about ESG. And and what that means is what what are your policies? What are your plans? How do you measure? How are you more inclusive? And this is becoming, I think as it becomes more of a requirement, especially if you are investing, then it'll become more important. Um, but the reality is that if there's a saturated market, why wouldn't you go where the water is still blue and not this red ocean, right? The, the blue ocean strategy, after all, is a lot better than the red ocean strategy. And, and so there's just like a lot of opportunity from a financial perspective. You look at stats. Everyone always forgets about the stats and the outperformance of diverse groups and teams and so on and so forth. But really, you know, it's a matter of time and alpha being shown. I mean, we think about like, for example, the story of Atope from uh, the founder of Calendly, right? No VC would fund him for years. Then he <laughs> builds his billion dollar valuation type company. And then all the VCs are like, let me get a piece of that. But it was only after being rejected for years and years. And here's this black founder who tried and then he couldn't make it happen. So he bootstrapped and he bootstrapped to a unicorn. And that's a phenomenal story that we have in in the US. And something I point out, because, you know, look, VC is not for everyone. And there are really great businesses that everyone across the board, white, brown, black, um, whatever the, the the skin color is or demographics, they will build really great businesses, but they're not venture-backable. They're not going to become these decacorns, unicorns. And so there's that layer. Uh, and a lot of the time what ends up happening that I, I get really upset about is people calling our markets too niche. And this happens with LATAM as a region. This happens with our communities. This happens with lots of people. And it boils my blood because there's really great talent 
and great opportunity to make great business happen. And yeah, I mean, the added bonus is you're enabling a new face of venture capital of startup founders and unicorns and decacorns. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? 100%. Well, and you know what? We're kind of closing out here as we, as we kind of, you know, uh, wrap up. You know, today is March 8th, right? So it's International Women's Day. And I think that I was going to ask you, you're one of the most active people in, you know, in kind of changing the narrative about who's an investor and what does an investor look like and what does a founder look like? But I, I would say, what are you doing to change this? But I think it's really clear. <laughs> like, like, I wouldn't even need to ask that. Um, What's you know, clear, I think, Brian? I want you to, what, what is very clear? I, I'm so excited to hear you say it. <laughs> it's clear that you are really working to bring this to the forefront, right? That the, this is something important to you. It's a, you know, kind of at the core of what you're doing, bringing more gender uh, and ethnic diversity into the VC world. So my question was, you know, how can we do that? And I, and instead of saying, how can we do that? It's very clear you're already doing that. And so I, I guess the, the question to kind of wrap up here is, what are the big steps that are going to happen over the next couple of years What's the one thing that will move the needle? You know, I know this is important to you. So what is the one thing that you think needs to happen in order to move the needle there? Uh, it's quite simple, actually. You need to stop mentoring. And this is not to you, Brian, to everyone. We all need to stop saying, let's mentor X person or X community and do more investing. So mentor less, invest more in women founders, funders, and everyone else. Write checks, basically. Right checks, right checks. That's 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 the TLDR. Put money where your mouth is, and and then we'll prove it, right? We'll we'll have to prove it, and make sure you get your alpha. But we'll get there, and that's just a matter of time. So, um, it's an exciting time to be around. And let me tell you, there's an entire community of people like you, like you, Brian and, and, and Gina, that are really starting to enable the change of the face of venture capital and startups. And it all comes back to putting money into great people and watching them multiply that and uh, solve big problems in the world. Yeah, that's ultimately innovation is about is finding the opportunities, you know, finding the, the people that can, you know, affect the change and build solutions that, you know, allow us to kind of change, change the course of, of, of you know, where we're headed. So. Uh, well, listen, thank you so much for, you know, being a part of our community. You know, that's a big topic. And, you know, I'm learning about community from you. So that's, that's fun to have people that join our community, uh, you know, and we're, we're looking to, you know, elevate the next generation of entrepreneurs. Part of that is elevating the next generation of investors, which includes you. And so it's, it's awesome to be able to have someone that not only uh, we can help support, but also learn from at the same time. That's to me, I think that really summarizes what the power of community is, where you have all these individual contributors to a community that are maybe learning at the same time, but they're also teaching and contributing. So um, I feel really lucky to have you as part of uh, you know what we're building. Thank you so much, Brian. And listen, I mean, this has been a wonderful conversation, especially because I talked about the thesis and then you said, yeah, that's what's happening. And I'm like, I love it because you get it. And there are some who don't. 
Um, but we're going to build really great things together in community at Latitude, beyond Latitude, in Ladam, across borders. And I'm so excited to be here. And however I can help again, you let me know. You know where to find me. My second home is Twitter, at Lolita Taub. And if anyone listening has any challenges with deal flow from the startup side or the investor side, emerging fund manager side, hit me up. I'm happy to help you. And I'm also happy to meet you as I'm on my LADAM tour. And let's do this together. That's great. Thank you for that. Yeah, you, you're generous in helping other people. And that's something that I think that's a key to what you do, right? You build value first. And then when you build value, it always kind of comes back, you know, tenfold. So um, yeah, f- follow Lolita on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, vamos Latam. Vamos. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Lolita Taub, general partner of Ghana's Ventures. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like her. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.